Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, it's a great show with great friends. Khalees Hawkins is back. Khalees is a WGA award-nominated writer for That Damn Michael Che on HBO Max and a story editor for Everything's Trash starring Phoebe Robinson on Hulu. Coming soon. Gina Brion is back. Gina was born and raised in the Bronx, New York. Her one-hour special, Gina Brion, The Floor is Lava, won a 2021 Grazie Award and is available on Amazon Prime. Along with her first special, Pacifically Speaking, her half-hour special, Easily Offended, streams on all HBO digital platforms. She was a finalist on America's Got Talent, season 16, and has made appearances on The View, Late Night with Seth Meyers, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. You have seen her on Kevin Can't Wait on CBS and The Connors on ABC. Also welcome back, my young star, Noye Brown-West. Noye is a New York-based Nigerian-American comedian and writer. She has been featured in the Boston Globe's Rise column as a comic to watch. And we agree. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you. We make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and make sure you turn on the auto-download function on the Friends Like Us for Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend leave us a tip or donation by going to our patreon page go to patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops all available just go to my website marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick my wacky friend dave juskow and we give updates to the show shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends for the podcast stopping by and sometimes we even offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows and with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands Wear a mask still if you want to get vaccinated, booster up, and Black Lives Matter. I have not seen like two of you for a very long time, Gina and Khalees. Noye is almost like my regular, right, Noye? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Also, Noye, just a little tidbit. This is why I have all these little stock things in the uh, articles is because Noye actually... With my uncle Buzz, <laughs> we like do like stock class with my uncle. Yep. What's a stock class? Oh, stocks, like mm-hmm. stocks. Yeah, he's showing us how to read charts. Yes, mm-hmm. nice. It's very yes. helpful too. And he's he brought up a lot of stuff that like I didn't even think to check on, which I thought was great. Oh, really? So, yeah. Just going back to two thousand eight, which. Duh, right? We should be going back to 2008 now that we're about to have another recession and just see. Yeah, very smart. I loved it. Uncle Buck. Uncle Uncle Buzz. <laughs> oh, Uncle so, Buzz. Well, we'll get more into that later. But um, Gina, I didn't see the baby the last time I saw you. And I was really upset. Yeah. Because <laughs> I always see He's, you with the uh, baby. You bring, do you bring the baby to every show? That's my little homie. 
Um, I bring him as many times as I can. Um, I get a little worried about, you know, he needs as normal of a schedule as possible. So I want to be fair to him. But it is hard for me to take time away. Like I had to go to Israel for some charity shows that I did out there. And that was 10 days without him. And I was a mess. Like I was, I was a mess. Like I was a mess when I was leaving. I was a mess coming back because I just wanted to see him. That was really hard. Um, But because of so many factors, I just could not bring him with me. So I try to bring him when I can. Like I brought him to the cellar a few times when I couldn't find a sitter. And I was like, well, he's just going to have to sit with one of the, the first person to babysit was Saifa. <laughs> uh, somebody was like, Saifa has kids. It was Nathan. It was like, Saifa has kids. Give him to Saifa. So I just gave him the Saifa. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I would just call my friends and see if they could come over and just sit with him for a little bit. So I get my girlfriend to sit with him. But comics are like my extended family. So like, I know I could leave him with Auntie Amanika. I could leave him with Uncle Saif. And Titi Rina. Titi Rina. Titi Rina. Yeah. I call myself Titi. Titi Rina. Titi Rina. He, and he would just, yeah. he's just, a, he's so easy to take care of too. Like that kid is everything. Like I never thought I'd love being a mom as much as I do. Aw, that's so yeah, different that's from like homie. someone I know who's like, when she gets away, she gets away. <laughs> and she's like i think your kids have to be older though like for you to really feel that because i think as he gets older i'll be able to actually sit in that relief of not being on mom duty 24 7 mm-hmm. but right now since he's not even two yet it's like the, the still the bane of my existence is making sure that he's safe and happy and okay and then when he gets older i'll be like what is he five put him on the phone stop crying listen to your dad click <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> but now it's a little tougher but yeah he's he's a charmer oh and Khalees, yeah. how is your little one she's no longer little though 15 um Whoa. doing great she's in high school <laughs> is she being like a teenager like is she doing rolling of the eyes i don't see that in her well, i mean yeah i think they all do that but i don't think like teenagers are legit teenagers from covid like they're a little bit regressed so she's still very innocent Mm-hmm. And I've even talked to school teachers who have said the same thing, that their children are a lot younger than the age that they're supposed to be because of the two years without socializing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense. That's really interesting that it had such an effect on them in that way. Teenagers do, I don't know, the life. I read this interesting fact, and I'm, I'm such a book nerd, and I was reading this book about the brain. And Khalees, you can tell me if this is true because you actually have a teenager. But in this book, the person writing the book says the reason why there's so much strife between parents and their teenagers is because you're not understanding how their brain works. Like they have thoughts, like adults have thoughts. They think like little adults, but their feelings are that of adolescence. So they can't get out of their big emotions enough to have the same logic as an adult which is why you have these adult feelings and these big emotions, which just creates chaos. I would tell you that that's like the same from two till, really? till the rest of it. And it, the reason why teen gets hard is because they actually get smarter. And since they can't quite articulate their emotions, they're still smarter about the things that they want to tell you. And they're still, you know, I think from the beginning of a child's life, since they don't have any power or control about their surroundings, that they learn how to manipulate and whether it's crying or whether it's 
presenting a good counter argument. It's never mm-hmm. not the case that they're, um, yeah, that they don't communicate. And you know what? Honestly, we know a lot of adults that can't communicate. Oh, when that's a fact. Yes. Yes. That is a fact. So I think the problem is the disconnect from adults and children going, you're not old enough to speak to me this way versus, oh, you haven't learned how to emote. You haven't learned how to express yourself. And some people yeah. never will. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. Oh that's God. why I work, I work really hard with my son on his emotions, especially having a son. It's like, I have to teach you better than the men even from my generation have been taught because we're all working from old paradigms of parenting and old paradigms and ways of thinking and ways of speaking. And so now I have this little boy that I want to raise as a good human. Let's take male and female out of it. A good human is what I need to raise. And in order to raise that good human, I have to teach him the stuff that I wasn't taught as a kid, like how to handle those big emotions how to understand them. And yes, it's difficult at this age because communicating with him has its in- enormous difficulties when you're trying to communicate with a child that's not even two years old, but there's ways to do it. There's ways to teach him, you know, like when he's crying, like, are you sad? Are you sad? So he associates, oh, every time I'm crying, mommy thinks I'm sad. That must be what happens when people are sad. So after that association, then he can go, I'm sad. Like he'll tell me when he's cranky now, which is amazing for a kid that's not even two. I'll say, are you cranky? And he'll go cranky and he'll shake his head. (laughs) And it's teaching him how to understand those emotions so they're not so scary and foreign, as opposed to what a lot of us grew up with, which was the because I said so. Oh, no, I grew up with, oh, Oh, you cry like that? Oh, that's the kind of motherfucker you are. Oh, I get it. Like, <laughs> I grew up with parents, like a parent and like, um, I guess just on that level, like my aunts and everybody who just didn't understand children at all. And yeah, it was our disposition. It wasn't, we're tired. It wasn't, we're hungry. It was that we're just little whiny brats. <laughs> I had the opposite. My parents are professors, so they talk to us to adults sometimes. Like about mm. like race, race relations, the um, L.A. riots, everything. We, I was like six, knowing what the Ku Klux Klan was. But even about our emotions, they're very like, oh, you're adults. <laughs> I think that's the Nigerian way of raising kids, though. Doesn't always turn out correct, but I don't know. Well, I always noticed that my sister, you know, I my my niece, the four year old, she's a lot. She's a lot. She's a handful um, and you have to have a lot of patience. She's actually very smart. So, and I've noticed this about her. So if you don't communicate with her, she gets frustrated. Um, and so I take the time to say to her, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to like, do you want to draw something right now? Cause I could tell she just wanted to do something and no one was listening. And so she was crying. So I gave her a pencil. I gave her a piece of paper and she started, she was very focused and she just started drawing. I said, wow, imagine if no one took the time to do just this moment right here, how frustrated. And she may have gotten, a, you know, back in the day, you would get a whooping, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you're not For crying too much. Mm-hmm. She's my little angel, though. She calls me TT. She goes, she always says this, TT, I want come to your house tt and it's just because you listen to her like that's impactful when you listen to a child and, like 
to my point earlier, the fact that she's four today means that I don't know if she went to pre-K three or pre-K four and got to see other kids and got to see other kids frustrated and going through their emotions and being socialized. I don't know, you know, kids these days have they're being socialized the same for the last couple of years. Yes. I talked about this on the last episode that in school, she's now learning that someone may not like her. She's four. She's in, she's in, I guess it's pre-K. What is that? In four, at four? Is it pre-K? Four. I don't know what that is. Nursery school <laughs> yeah, or pre-K like, four, pre-K three, pre-K four, and then kindergarten. Whoa. What? Were there that many when we were kids? No, no I, I don't so. think so. Yeah. No, we had, I don't think there were. <laughs> yeah. So she's, she says, she goes, do you not like me? She's, she'll say that. She go, she'll bring that up. And I go, what, how was your day today? And one time she goes, I had a bad day. Like she was excited. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I had a bad day. <laughs> and I was so like, funny. so some kid bitter and she slapped the shit out of him. Good. Yeah, yeah honestly. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I hate to be that parent, but I'm like, good for her. But the thing is, is like she's understanding now because she's been in, at home how to be around other kids. They have to learn how to share. Mm-hmm. That's going to that's that's a difficult thing, I think, for little kids to learn. Like even my son, who I'm starting to take on play dates because he's a pandemic baby. So like he really has not socialized with anybody who isn't an adult. Yeah. You know, except for the few times he sees his cousins on my husband's side which they're all like little kids. So they love playing with him, but he doesn't see them a lot. So when I take him to the playground or to like a kid's play place, it takes him a good 20 minutes before he's comfortable enough to socialize. Like he has to assess the situation. And I I give him that space. I don't rush him into it. I don't push him to socialize. I let him settle. And, And then when he's ready, he goes up to kids and, you know, he's adorable. So he's just goes, hola. Like he just loves to talk to kids. Oh, adorable. <gasps> oh, he's so cute. You might see him at some point. He might pop up. He's out with my husband now, but Aww. he makes his presence known when he comes in. I have a friend who was in bad, is in bad health. She's always been in bad health and she has two small children. So she's had to like socially isolate from anybody who could possibly have COVID so she can remain their mother for the rest of their lives. And so when she takes into the park now, they're afraid of other children because they never met any mm. other children. Wow. wow. I mean, I get that too. Like we had a uh, Victor Vernado on the podcast. He was talking about how coming out of COVID, everyone looked like monsters. <laughs> mm. I was like, they do. I still go through a little bit of that. You know, I don't hang out as much as I use. I have a little bit of social anxiety. I run, I leave events quite often. And people yeah. often go like I had Beth Stelling one time at a rooftop thing. Sarah Silverman throws a rooftop party every year. This was pre-COVID. And I I was on my way out. <laughs> and Beth Selling was like, Marina, where are you going? I was like, I, I can't, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this social thing right now. I just, I, I gotta, I can't do it. Even at the cellar sometimes I'm like, you know, Keith is always like, hang out. And I go, I, I just don't, I don't get any joy from really just hanging out. I, I don't know if I ever did really. Mm. Um, because yeah. also the things that I hear being said, mm. I have a lot of opinions about 
um, and I can't really sit there and tolerate it anymore. Yep. No, so. that's and I respect it. I don't see a problem with that. I think people act like that's a bigger problem than it actually is. You know, when your social meter runs yep. out and you honor it. And I don't think you should change that because I'm the same way. I'm, I've always had a lot of social anxiety since I was a kid. I don't like big groups of people. I don't go to clubs. I was never a club person. I literally don't go to parades. I don't I get overwhelmed too easily in those situations. And so when I wouldn't hang out at comedy clubs, like it's so funny what people internalize and take personally. It's like, this isn't about uh-huh. you. This is about honoring my comfort level. I don't want to be here. I would rather be home. So I'm going to go home. My job is done. I'm not obligated to hang out with anyone. And I think people really do internalize that as like, oh, well, she just doesn't like us or this crowd of people or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, maybe I don't, but even still, bye, peace, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I leave. I, I Sometimes I leave and they didn't even know I, I let. One time Yamanika saw me at the club at, I think it was like, it was late. It was like 11. She's like, what the, which, what? <laughs> <laughs> what is Marina doing here? She's like, oh, I know this past your bedtime. I was like, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I'm barely making it, but you know. And I just want to say like, both of you, Khalees, Gina, I've just been watching what you're doing, right? Like you're both just making me, it's very inspiring. Like successful, I would say, at what you're doing right now. Coming out of the pandemic, you're both like doing amazing things. I know Gina, I saw you did do something for New York One. Uh, Terry Lynn, she told me, Terry Martin. I love her again. Um, she hit me up and had me go out there for an interview. That was really nice. It was great to see her. Can you tell me a little bit about what was that? What was it was fun. They um, so New York one does this thing like where they do like Women Wednesday or I forget what they call it, but they like they honor women that are kind of making strides and kind of doing things that are making an impact. And so they were kind enough to call me and they said they would love to do an interview for uh, for this segment. And I was totally down. Once I found out it was Terry, too, I was like, oh, for Terry. Yeah, of course. I love Terry. And so they had me come in and it was a really nice interview and just a pleasant environment. And I think it just keeps every now and then, I think as a comic, you do stuff like that. And it just it gets the ball rolling to inspire you to keep moving forward. It's like sometimes we can get really complacent and plateau because it's comfortable to plateau. Like you can stay there. It's and, and here's the crazy thing about women, women of color, particularly in entertainment. We don't have the option to <laughs> just plateau because our careers will legit end if we plateau. We constantly have to strive and push ourselves to get to that next level so that we have the opportunity to open doors for people that are coming after us. And I think that's always on my mind is like, what can I do next for my career that will enable me to be able to open the doors so that when I'm ready to run and retire to my cottage in the woods, <laughs> y'all can take the stage and, and blaze a new trail for the people after me. But I have to do my best to make sure I get in those positions and make it into those rooms. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. Were oh. you, or were you raising your hand? <laughs> no, no, I was, I don't know what I was doing. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were going. Sorry. That cottage in the woods, by the way, that's DC's cottage. Go check it out. So you could, yeah, do, you could you, do it. I told my therapist, that's my escape plan. I said, it's going to be a cottage in the woods. I'm going to work at a general store. I'll have the same Bernard and a pickup truck. 
I'm there. I yeah. was at that lake. He has a lake house and he has a bungalow. So when you do the gig, <sighs> you say, I think you stay in the bungalow, but you got to check out that lake house. It is, you're literally sitting on the lake. You're just looking at the water. There's like ducks. The sa- I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, but I appreciate the sounds of nature more than I've ever I was listening to like, and then the storm, there was supposed to be a storm that night. So the frogs were like screaming. They were letting us know. I was like, okay, all right, it's coming. <laughs> That's I got, fascinating. I got the you. only nature sound I don't like are cicadas. Oh, they're so loud. I hate oh my cicadas. God. They're obnoxious. And one of them got into my car one time when I was driving home from my parents' house and I am traumatized and I don't trust them and I don't think they're cool or cute. They are. I do not like cicadas. Yeah, they're, they, they look vicious. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like they've been hanging out longer. Yeah. Well, some of them are like slow. So they like will come out at random time. So you will hear them like throughout. Yeah. They're little slow guys. The dumb ones come out like. <laughs> <laughs> the dumb ones they do. They come out early or late. Hey, where'd everybody go? <laughs> they're trying to bone. They're like, there's no other ones. Just these dummies. Then they make more dummies that come out even later. It's just. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so funny. And I don't think we've had you on since America's Got Talent. I don't think. But you were, it was like, you were blazing it. I mean. They actually just, uh, they're trying to bring me into host for them in May at the Vegas show. And I say trying because it's still up to me. And so like, I'm, I'm most likely going to go out there and host for them uh, for the live show in Vegas, which will be really cool. The experience itself was I always say it was the best and the worst thing because it taught me a lot about working that much under pressure, about having that many eyes on you, about the importance, the even more the importance of social media and how just how those shows are structured. And I would say the bad because it was a very overwhelming and frustrating process. Like whenever you're working with a major network as a comedian, it's frustrating because there are so many controlling factors to what you can and cannot say and what you can and cannot do. There were things that I wanted to do on the stage that were just like, well, no, we can't do that for you because then if another performer wants to do an extra special thing, now we got to do that for them and them and them and them and them. And, you know, and then there were content and language restrictions, which I were clean, which is no problem. But I mean, there were content restrictions like you can't say the word toxic. You can't say the word this. You can't do an accent that's not from your culture. So there were like literal things that it was like you cannot. They were so creatively controlling that made it an uncomfortable environment creatively at times because you really had to Frankenstein your two minute set together. Yeah. Pulling stuff that's okayed. I was working with them in 2020 or 2021. I forget when now. Time moves fast. But yeah, they basically wrote a new set for me out of like really old material I had from like year one of comedy. I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I'm definitely not getting on this show because I don't even tell jokes like this anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're very much like um, I would have to submit uh, one to two sets every week. Uh, when I was on the show so that they could approve it. At one time, they, I submitted three and they said no to all three of them for different reasons. And I was just like, my mind is blown because it's not entirely, the, the whole putting stand up on for two minutes is not really fair to the viewer 
because you're getting a small snippet of who that comic is in two minutes. And it's very network controlled and it's very TV friendly. So a lot of times these comics that have made strides on there are pigeon held to whatever that two minute idea was of them. So when people come out to see their shows and they get a broader picture of who they are, of like, you know, like everyone is just this layered onion of a person. And the more you get of them, the more they were like, oh, well, I didn't realize this person talked about that. Or I didn't realize they had this view or I didn't. And it's just like, yeah, you only saw them for two minutes. You might want to do your homework on the people that you're supporting because it's just, at least you'll be more informed when you're coming out to shows. You want to watch longer sets by them. You want to get to know them because it, it does teach you that's just like, oh, these two minutes, that's, that's who I am in total, these two minutes. That's why the best piece of advice I was given was by Tom Cotter. Tom said, remember, they see you longer for your interview than they do when you're on stage. Oh, that's good advice, yes. So remember, when you're in your interview, that is what they're selling. that's very smart. So I was like, dang, that's a good piece of advice. That's just something to keep them. And they got me every time, by the way, every single time they made me cry and they knew exactly how to do it. It was, I mean, you could fight it every time I would go in there and I'd be like, I'm not going to cry today. I'm not going to cry. They're not. And then the producer would be like, so you've talked about how much your parents have sacrificed. And I'd be like, <laughs> right away, instantly. I'd be like, oh my God, it's so true. <laughs> so they, they, they knew what to do. They're very good at their job in terms of getting you to tell the most emotive parts of your story. Were there any stories that you were like, I don't, I can't t- talk about that? So I don't think they wanted me to. It wasn't that I couldn't, because there was stuff that, you know, when they would ask me certain questions, like, you know, a lot of people know this just from the other podcasts I've been on that I was in an abusive relationship. So, and it was emotionally abusive. And when those topics come up, I don't shy away from talking about them because I think the more you talk about it, the more I could help other people heal from their situation or even clue them in to the fact that you might not even know that you're being manipulated by a person. You might not even know that you're being gaslit, that you're with a narcissist, but I can tell you stories and maybe you're sitting at home going, oh, wow, that happens to me all the time with my partner. I didn't realize that wasn't a thing that's not supposed to happen. And so there were certain questions they would ask, and I could always tell because they would move on real quick from those questions where I was like, oh, we don't want to bring in it. Like, we weren't allowed to talk about COVID. We weren't allowed to. There was a lot of stuff we were just not allowed to mention or talk about. And that was all for the sake of keeping people feeling uplifted and happy. You don't want to bring down, you know, the whole show. But I was like, yeah, but that's also the reality of what we're all going through. It's funny that you said, I mean, not funny, but it was interesting that you said that because someone asked me recently while I'm I'm writing a show that do I want to talk about COVID in it or have any of that reality in it? And they say it brings people out. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. what we need. I I don't know. I think a lot of the um, I I get that people need escape. I'm not one of those that gives people escape, though. (laughs) That's not what that's not my art. My art form is So it's a very interesting thing because I think America's problem is that networks, for the most part, have given them too much escape. Oh, child, let me just hit the stuff that I'm reading right now in terms of how marketing and, and programming works, like trust that they know what they're doing. They're not giving you an escape to help you out. They're giving you an escape to help them out. They're giving you an escape so that you will shop more. 
They're giving you an escape so that you will travel more and not think about the pressing issues that we're all supposed to be dealing with. But they think that's what we need and want, and they think that's what we'll sell, and they're they're not always right. It's just like when they put out Ted Lasso, and they were like, everybody needs to be comforted, and everybody needs this sweet, you know, bullshit happening. And then Squid Games came out, and they're like, we can't believe people wanted to see violent murder <laughs> and blood gushing everywhere. We had we thought that they were were sad. And they couldn't believe it. And now severance is out. And I couldn't I couldn't turn it off. I was so stressed out. And I was like, we all have to get through this together. <laughs> I, I couldn't like yeah. I couldn't let it go. It's such an addictive program. So, you know, they, they have these ideas and they have these like they're they're even conditioned to feel that they know what they're talking about. And then they manipulate that, manipulate us based on what they're conditioned. It reminds me of how you remember how how much men are manipulated like to how to like game you? This is how you have to game a woman. This is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. This is how you, you that's how you can catch her and get her. That's what networks feel like to me now. They're like trying to game audiences, but it's not even necessary. You can just be authentic and give us something that's real and we might yeah. like that too. Like look it's at crazy. Abbott Elementary. People love that show and it's pretty real. That's like <laughs> she has wrote that based on what she experienced as a kid, you know? So I feel like we've all yeah. been gaslit by networks. So yeah, and yeah. in, in so many ways we are as performers because there's an imbalance in the relationship. You know, you strive so hard to get in the rooms with the networks, and then you're treated like an employee or a subordinate instead of the person that's bringing everything they need to the table. I'm literally giving you the creative, my creative that I have carefully crafted over years. I'm giving you this that. I know will work because I have people in clubs that want to continue to come see me, but it becomes this imbalance because they control the money for the situation that you want. So once they control the money, they control your emotions because they, now they have you going back and forth and it's a crazy game. And I've been, I mean, I've heard stories and I've been in rooms where just the craziest stuff gets said. And as a person who I I don't wear a mask well, I, you will see my emotions on my face. You will see that I think you're dumb on my face. If you say some dumb shit, you'll see it on my face. And so I've been in these rooms where I've just, like, I'll just look over to my manager and I'm like, we got to leave. Cause I'm going to say something that's going to make everyone in this room very uncomfortable. And it actually did happen once I did just, I just, I said something because somebody was being, and arrogant. This wasn't even a, a project. It was just uh, an agent who was being overly arrogant and needed to be corrected. And so I took the opportunity to correct him. You were like in an interview to like use this agent to like sign yeah. with them, and they were saying, and he was being super arrogant. And he had said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you don't, you're not a hard sell when it comes to ticket sales. So we'll have to start you in smaller theaters basically what he was saying is we're going to put you in hood rooms because i don't have a relationship with actual clubs and so i'm listening to this man talk and mind you i had had a phenomenal touring agent before this man phenomenal who taught me everything i needed to know about what makes a good touring agent that's how good she was and how thorough she was she taught me so that if i got another touring agent i could correct their bad manners or their bad behaviors in certain ways So as soon as he stopped talking, I said, let me just inform you. I had a phenomenal touring agent at UTA who taught me 
a lot about how this works and did a lot of work getting me into the clubs. So if you cannot book me in these clubs, it speaks more to your ineptitude mm. as an agent than it does to my ability to mm-hmm. fill seats. Ooh. So true. So true. And it needed to be said because yeah. they will just walk all over you as if they have the right to tell you what your value is. You know what it is? I'm telling you, it's the same thing as being in a relationship. Not only do they have their own like insecurities and limitations, but instead of addressing that, instead of working their way out of it, they put the stereotype of you, of what they, they, they use that instead of like addressing themselves. They use mm-hmm. like what they can and what they know of you to like give a pass to how they can't get something done. Mm-hmm. That is 100%. That is absolutely true. What did the agent say afterwards? He was shocked. He was speechless. <laughs> and he had bought this. <laughs> I think he wanted to, to a certain extent because, um, uh, he had just been fired. <laughs> oh, he had just been fired by one of the weigh-ins. I want to say it was Shante fired him, and that's what he gets. And he was butthurt because the first thing I did was mention Shante because I had a feeling she had fired him. I didn't know, but I had a feeling, so I mentioned her, and he was like, and it still super unprofessional. He's like, mm-hmm. well, she fired me, so, <laughs> and I was like, okay, you a bitter bitch. Um, <laughs> He, he was butthurt because then I mentioned my former manager and he goes off on a tirade just cursing up a storm about my former manager. And I'm like, I didn't say we had bad blood. Unprofessional, unprofessional. Un- yeah, unprofessional. that's so bad, yeah. And it was just this, the whole meeting to me was just insane. I was like, I don't even need to waste time taking this. Like, it's an immediate no. Because a know? lot of these people who are supposed to support our careers are leeches and <laughs> ambulance chasers and... Mm talentless empty say it again (laughs) blood sucking (laughs) bottom feeders and so like if they can't bring talent to the table what i've noticed is the best managers and the best type people like that and those they could have been comics like for real not the ones who tried and failed the ones who get it are funny you know and they have that charisma with you and they can see Mm -hmm. what to do with you for real because they have that in them but they also have this type a personality where they can organize things and they can like set up meetings for you i can't do that part that's what i need them for (laughs) my manager i love my manager now her name is jenny callahan and like she's the perfect manager for me she actually cares about me as a person above all else and so and she's a mom too so she understands like you know when i had to go to israel she was like texting me the day of my flight and she was like i know this is tough for you he's gonna be okay he's a strong kid you're gonna be back in 10 days she's like the good thing is when you come back he's gonna be so thrilled to be with you and just concentrate on that feeling and having somebody who treats you like a person and not a product is a huge thing in this industry because especially with your manager particularly because with agents i can understand if they're detached you're not a part of my everyday you're looking for work for me. Fine. Do your job. I could care less. Just don't be a, a horrible person if I have to deal with you. But with managers, there's such a personal relationship with managers. You really have to be able to have those conversations with your manager and be like, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this situation. I mean, there were times when I was on AGT where I was on the phone in tears with my manager. Just like, I, I'm struggling with this. And having that person that's not just like, hey, brush your shoulders off and shrug it off, kid, and get in front of the camera. You know, my manager's the type of person to be like, all right, 
we all need a moment. So we're going to take this moment. Isn't it bizarre really that, that shows like that are selling all of this placation and happiness and joy and they're torturing the people mm-hmm. who are selling it like it's mm-hmm. the circus? Child, this is what I feel <laughs> about that, honestly, because a lot of people complain about you know, all oh, the shows on TV aren't as good as they used to be. Well, that's because a lot of them, the creatives come with this specific idea that might be an amazing idea that gets watered down and watered down and watered down and watered down and put into different boxes and made to fit a format that is outdated and overused. And nobody's taking any chances on anything new. And you, if you want new stuff, you've got to go to the streaming services of which there are now so many in abundance and an overflood of original original content where you're like, whoa, pick a lane. It's like you go to some of these streaming services and it's like, what exactly are you guys about? Because right now it just feels like I'm at a farmer's market that is a streaming service. <laughs> yeah. It's like you got, you have no, like even, even with um, Netflix and I enjoy all streaming services, but there was, and I'm a comedy. I love watching comedy. Like I, I just love it. It's my favorite thing still to this day. But even Netflix, their comedy market got flooded. It was like I couldn't even watch all of the specials because I couldn't keep up with how many specials they were putting out a week. There were friends of mine that came out with specials that I didn't even know about because the market was flooded. I'm glad you brought up Netflix. This brings us to our hot topics or maybe a a week behind hot topics. Topic. But it's because of what I was just saying with Noye, like with um, my uncle Buzz, I kind of knew their stock would drop the way it did. I was I remember um, my friend Hatim, he called me up. He goes, Marina, he goes, you're you knew this was going to happen. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you said it the night before that their stock is going to go way down. I go, it just made sense. I mean, they have. It was coming for some time. I knew it because they were one, they were being sort of greedy. And then two, once you start changing your your story or who you are as a as a streaming platform, people lose confidence. And the young generation, they share passwords. That's just what they've always done. You and now that generation that shared passwords is sort of like an older generation, and old people don't change. And also, you know, the fact that they lost 200,000 subscribers in the United States, I think they lost over 600,000 somewhere else. Because um, they kept raising their prices. And during during the pandemic, everybody was like, fuck it, I need entertainment. But like now that we're somewhat returning back to some sense of like normalcy, we're like, wait, I'm paying how much? And there's so many other service? ones now, too. And they lost a lot of their... Uh, contracts because of all these other streaming services. Disney bought back a lot of its stuff. Like all the Marvel stuff was bought back by Disney. Uh, NBC bought back all their stuff, ABC. So they had less and less content that people wanted to watch and their prices were higher. And then there there were a lot of things. It was like a special little bomb went off. (laughs) And I think also the fact that people may want less screen time is going to be something in the future. I think people really like the live comedy factor, the the amount of people who need to be in front of something and have the community is, is what's needed. 
And you have to like sort of know that's what's going on. Like even for me who I'm a, you know, I, I was raised on TV. You know, my TV was yeah, my babysitter, like he said in the uh, cable guy. And so I used to just sit in front of the TV and watch. So it's funny for me, I can't do it really anymore. I like want to get away from screens. I can't, it doesn't, it doesn't, the fantasy isn't buying, it's not selling me. The biggest mistake Apple made was sending me those screen notifications because all it did mm -hmm. was the screen time notifications. All it did was motivate wow. me to not be on my phone because it was, I was so embarrassing that I would look at my phone and it would be like, oh, you're on your phone for Whoa. like 13 hours. <laughs> and it's like, that's because I'm playing videos for my son. I'm like editing stuff on my phone. I'm constantly in this device. And so when I started to realize just how much time, like now when my son wakes up in the morning, we do affirmations. That's the first thing we do is affirmations. After affirmations, it's no TV, no devices, no nothing. It's me and him. So we're reading books. We're playing together. We're doing whatever. We're going to the park whatever it is. And it's cut down on my screen time a lot. Now, this is a work and personal phone. So obviously I can't ignore it. You know, I have to answer messages, text messages and, and do phone calls. But just knowing, and I was getting lost in the social media aspect of it too. Like I joined oh, TikTok God. and <laughs> it, it's what it is, is TikToksic. That's what they need to call it. Because yeah, I can't even look on that thing. It's too loud. It's too much it started off as this really fun entertaining like almost like a vine where it was like you'd watch quick videos not realizing that your attention span is getting shorter and shorter and shorter as you get more glued to this device and these short video formats and so everything that happens on these social media apps always repeats itself when facebook came out it was the hot thing and all the young people were on it then the older people came in and took over Facebook. Then Instagram came out and all the young people were on Instagram. And then the older people came and took over Instagram. And now TikTok is out. And slowly but surely, all of us over 25, over 30 people are <laughs> creeping up on them, putting out content. And it's changing the dynamic of the app because now they have 10 minute long videos. On oh, TikTok. I didn't know that because they're having so many people that are creating content and they're following suit. Instagram videos used to be shorter. But like, greedy. you know what I mean? Like It's because they're greedy. So once they get the money, they go, well, how can we be more like YouTube? And then they try to be like every other app that exists. Like Netflix has this show. They're acting like it's a, a TV show. It's like 10 minute long episodes that is basically just a trivia quiz app. And you go on it, you press the button and you're just, playing a game but they're pretending like it's an episode of something but they they just took the exact recipe from an app that was addictive wow yeah uh, well let me read this for you about i i mean i know i have trouble reading but uh <laughs> uh netflix and facebook have given up most of the last few years gains since tech's November peak in the five months since nasdaq peak late last year netflix and facebook or meta platforms have gotten crushed 
losing most of the gains they had accumulated over the past five years. In the recent past, both companies appear to have been unstoppable. Netflix was so embedded in America households with must-see original content that the company could periodically raise its monthly subscription cost and not miss a beat. And Facebook, with its billions of users and dominant ad targeting engine, was accumulating envious amounts of online ad revenue. Those stories have flipped, with investors reassessing the company's prospects in the face of increased competition and a deteriorating macroeconomic environment. As of April 22nd, Netflix had a market cap of $99.2 billion, down from over $300 billion in November. Facebook did briefly join the Trillion Dollar Club last year, but is now down to $532.6 billion. And the Netflix stock plummeted 35% after releasing its subscriber counts, which showed a loss for the first time in over 20 years. And it expects to lose as many in the current quarter, making this company's worst day since 2004. Facebook reports earnings next week, week of airing, but the stock has been under pressure since its last earning report in February. Now, Oh, and it says when the company missed user number expectations and warned of increased competitions from video apps like TikTok. Now, I secretly was kind of like, yay, because <laughs> they've never booked me. And I've been like, I feel like they're such gatekeepers of black talent. Like they don't use a lot of black talent in their comedy content. And even though I see some things getting some people and, you know, you know, they they do the old formula that has always been used, I found, which was on Comedy Central, where they sort of like let a few people in, you know, let, a, you know, let the, the numbers, they play this, they say it's the numbers. That's how they tell us that we're not valuable is because yeah. they're like, this person has the numbers and you don't. And it's just not true because you can see from people putting content on YouTube on their own that people and on TikTok you can see how many people are like, how come I've never seen this person before? How come I've never? And it's like, and then you have the whole Chappelle where he got paid so much. And you're like, wait, you paid this person how much? Or, or you get like, you know, the Monique thing where Monique was like, I don't get offered that amount of money. Wanda was like, I was never offered that amount of money, but this person's offered this. And then they say, well, your, your value is not that. So I kind of feel like, yeah, it's like it was it's yeah. it's payback in a sense because it's like you got greedy you thought you were bigger than what is the world and now you're in trouble because you you're selling something that you can't really sell you lied about your product and your product really doesn't support like i'm sorry but people of color you know so i mean it's so funny that you say that netflix has the same like rhythm as the as comedy central because it's the same bookers. Uh -huh. It's the same people. And it's funny because, you know, my manager brought me up to one of those people and they were like, yeah, we know Khalees. We love Khalees. It's like, we didn't put Khalees on Comedy Central. Why would you think we put her on wow. Netflix? <laughs> we, we know yeah. her. One thing I tell my manager all the time, and we have this back and forth because she's always very like, she loves to keep a positive attitude, but I'm always like, one thing I hate and will guarantee that I will never like you as an entity is when you sit there and say how much you love me, mm. but we've never worked together. Please don't tell me you love me 
Because even if you love me, what you're telling me is that you don't respect me. And so I don't want to hear how much you love me if you're not willing to feature my creative ideas on your platform Mm -hmm. because you don't love me that much. So please save me, spare me the whole, we love you, we love you, we love you. Let's just be honest here. Y'all don't fuck with me. I don't fuck with you. That's just how it is right now. They're not bouncing back either. I I would say, right? As of today, they're down 66% since last year, their stock. So they went from being worth, uh, you know, $515 um, per share to today it's $205 a share. I'm watching it go down in real time. This is hilarious. Yeah, I was yeah. watching it. I watched it this morning before we logged on. Still and I was down. like, it's still going down. Now, my uncle says that you you really still don't know. You got to look over the course of like three days, but it don't, it don't look good for them. I mean, like yeah. their future to come back. What, what did my uncle say? You really should never have yeah. a loss of more than 4%. It's yeah, it's and this 66% is 60? In, the, in the last year, which is crazy. That's a lot. And the Wall Damn. Street guys are making fun of them. They're like saying, you know, that sound that when oh, Netflix yeah. comes dun, dun. on, the dun, dun, <laughs> it's like, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> so they're starting to pull back their content. They lost subscribers in nearly every region, except for the Asia Pacific market, where it saw a net ad of over 1 million subscribers. But it lost around 640,000 subscribers in the United States, Canada region during the first quarter, a larger drop than its previous subscriber loss in the region last year and saw a 300,000 subscriber loss in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and 350,000 loss in Latin America. The losses are expected to continue in the second quarter when Netflix predicts it will lose an additional 2 million subscribers And so they've been talking about this new tier for people who can't really afford it, where they're going to put commercials on. That's just Paramount Plus at that point. I don't need that. (laughs) I already have Paramount Plus. Yeah. (laughs) I have a random question, and it's going to sound like a conspiracy, but are these numbers, do these numbers correlate with COVID deaths at all? These subscribers that are just disappearing? Huh. No, I don't... I don't think so. I think it I think it may, but I think it's mostly like um these are people who are actually you know actually saying I don't want to pay anymore. Um I don't want to pay because they raised it, bumped it up so high. And that's a large number of people who've just made that decision. It could be part of it, but that would that would mean across the board, which Netflix, because they're having trouble, also means that all of the streaming platforms are having problems. That's why CNN Plus was <laughs> they not a, what? even... <laughs> CNN Plus? <laughs> they st- yeah. That was- <laughs> yeah, they tried and it was over like within a day. <laughs> they were like, mm, on second thought. Uh, didn't work. Didn't work. So all of the streaming is actually in trouble. Except for HBO Max. I think HBO has seen an increase. But I think they're probably the only one. Maybe Apple TV. HBO Max is not. I I can't. I could not find that stock. So I think it's under eighteen. Oh, okay. Well, I was just talking about the um, 
them having subscribers. But they're also doing a really great job of giving people of color yeah. voices on that platform. Like, I think they're doing successfully what every other network and streaming service tries to forcibly do. Where it's, you know, every other streaming service and network seems to be like, we're diverse. Look at how diverse we are. We have exactly 15 Black people working on this network. And it's like, they love throwing that stuff out there. Like, this is how diverse we are. Whereas HBO was like, we have these talented creators who are people of color, who have these amazing projects that we want to put out there that are interesting and new. And they seem to be the only streaming platform that's really taking that risk and putting out stuff that has never really been done before. Like, you know, you look at shows like Michael Che's show that was on there and Sam J's show. And you're like, these are people with real stuff to say. That and are, Issa Rae. You know, yeah. Yeah. Issa Rae as well. You look at all of, all of these creators that are people of color and you just go, they're doing a phenomenal job of respecting the creative aspect of what they're, of what these people want to do. Yeah. It's, it's about time. It's funny that they, it took like a show like Issa Rae's or like Atlanta mm -hmm. for them to understand if you actually listen to the person who's creating the show, you have a successful show. Yeah. That should be written and posted up in every writer's room. Listen to the creators if you want a successful show, because I think so many of the shows, specifically sitcoms that fail, are because the creative was not listened to properly. Like I had a meeting with the, like this was years ago, obviously, because it was still the WB, um, with the people at the WB and they asked me, or just like on the Warner Brothers lot. And this woman asked me if there were any like uh, sitcoms that they had done because we had this lengthy conversation about sitcoms. And she said, you seem to know a lot about sitcoms. And I said, yeah, I grew up watching them and I was obsessed with comedy. So I, I've learned them very well. And she said, well, were there any sitcoms that we did that you feel like, you know, failed for a certain reason? And I just kind of sat back and she was like, it's okay. You can tell me. And I was like, are you sure? Because <laughs> this is going to be quite a, quite an honest moment. And I did, I mentioned one that I thought I was like, you just, uh, you kept recasting this one show and the problem was not the cast. It was never the cast. The problem was the story was told wrong and the writing was outdated. I said, as somebody who watches a lot of sitcoms and wanted this one to thrive, I watched it and I just saw everything that was going wrong. And a lot of that was not telling the story from the correct perspective. Like if you have somebody, like I think The Rock does a great job with his sitcom of telling a, a retrospective story where you can go back in someone's life, but here's who he is now as this person, as this famous person. Remember people that are watching this, they're watching it for the talent they know and love. So they wanna see The Rock. They wanna know that he's him, this famous guy. And so having him running for president as this character of The Rock and then being able to tell his life story was a brilliant way of doing a retrospective type sitcom. And they've tried that before. And this particular one I was talking about should have been done as a retrospective and was not. I was like, had you done this as a retrospective, it would have succeeded. And she agreed. She was like, agreed. And the people I've talked to about John Mulaney's sitcom agreed Did he as have well. A sitcom? John Mulaney's sitcom oh. was done. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I remember his IFC show. His IFC show is great, though. That one was good. But. Yeah. 
Yeah, he did a sitcom, but here's the thing. Everybody, what everybody loved about John Mulaney and a lot about that has changed now was his stuff on being married and how positive it was. It wasn't the same old, I hate being married, this sucks. It was very positive from a positive aspect. And then they did his show and he plays a single guy. And all of his fans are watching this like, wait, like, is this like, like before you were married? Like, what is, but you're not single anymore. I think what happens, and Kalish, you could probably, I mean, I know you can't really talk a lot because you're in a writer's room and you, you're, you're a story editor on a lot of shows that you probably can't really. Like, I, I, was, I was actually thinking this, like, the stories we're telling you here on the podcast and the stories you hear about people of color struggling to get their content made is only maybe like 1% of the actual story <laughs> because we actually can't say really what goes yep. on. But the stuff is abhorrent is the only way I could put it because I mean, I saw some tweet about like how, when we write how, um, you know, people who aren't of color perceive it, they're like, well, there, no one's going to understand that. No, you don't understand it because you don't have these people as your friends or you didn't grow mm -hmm. up around this. So you don't understand some things can translate to a lot of people in, in ways that you don't know. Um, and so the box becomes even smaller because they, they're they still trying to communicate yes. in very white ways. Yes, right? yes. So, Khalees, can you talk to, like, in what you, well, what you can talk the thing, about? The, well, the thing about that that I don't like is, like, I grew up on TV as well, and I had to see myself in characters on Saved by the Bell, not just Lisa. I had to see myself at, on 90210. I had to see myself on friends, you know? And so if I can fucking do it and that doesn't reflect my life, then white people can do it. Asian people can do it. Black people can do it. We do it. Spanish people can do it. Everybody can do it. So this story they're selling where they go, oh, well, people don't relate to it. I mean, maybe that's part of it. I, I pick up books I don't relate to all the time for the adventure and to remove myself from my own personal life. And I can relate to, if I can relate to Frodo going through his struggle <laughs> and getting that ring and having like pressure, then motherfuckers can relate to me as a black woman with a, with a mm -hmm. child if I wanted to sell that content. Like, what is that? <laughs> I mean, and shows like Insecure and Abbott Elementary prove that because, you know, very diverse cast, but they're just talking about everyday things that everybody experiences. Everybody went to yeah. elementary school. Everybody was dating in their 20s. Like we all experienced those things. It It, it is interesting that Blackish sort of changed in how <laughs> even my nieces were like, eh. We don't need to, because I think at first it was like, Blackish was so great because we were like, oh my God, yeah, there's a show about us. And then it was like, wait, are we explaining ourselves to white people? Absolutely. And I watch, I've watched every episode of Blackish. I watch every episode of Fresh Off the Boat. And both those shows just slowly became explaining Black culture, explaining Asian culture to white people. Um, were there moments where I was like, oh, this is great because they were jokes that I'm like, I don't think white people would even get this, but... I mean, those were few and far between as both those shows went on. But that might just be a Disney thing, right? Because ABC, ABC, but Disney anyway, very, hire me. Gabe had a show at, and on ABC and it was very much, it was difficult to get off the ground because, I mean, they did background checks on everybody. Uh, one of the main characters, one of the main people that's in his life who was supposed to be a character on the show could not be on the show because of the background check they did. Like, it's very, that's why I just don't, it's so funny when people, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of working on a few pitches 
And I always tell them I have no interest in going to network. <laughs> like as much as streaming might be suffering, I'm just like, I have no interest to go to network. I would rather self-produce than go to a network because if you have the people, then you have the power. So if you sell, that's why a lot of people self-produce. That's why a lot of people would rather, I think, push for the streaming thing because I feel like you have at least somewhat more creative control because that's what they want. That's what they're selling is this is original programming. It's not like what you're going to see on network TV. You know what I mean? It's, it's like this network cable hybrid that we now have. You're right. You know, I had someone say to me recently, oh, so in Hollywood, are they just throwing like, oh, we need a black person in, in there? Like the perception out there is that they're just, it's contrived, I guess, to do that. And I'm like, no, we exist. So a, uh, a friend of my husband's, they stopped being friends over this. They were talking about that Marvel movie, Eternals. And the person said to him, and this, this person is a person of color. They're, they're South American, but like dark skin, like lots of, you know, black and indigenous in their bloodstream. But they said to my husband, maybe they felt safe because he's a white guy. They said that they didn't like Eternals because it was too diverse. <laughs> and I was like, that isn't even a real thing. There's so many other reasons to dislike that movie. And that's the thing. And I liked the movie, but like, <laughs> there's so many other reasons to dislike it. And he said, because it's too diverse. And this is coming from a brown man. I couldn't even believe it. But yeah, they're not friends anymore. Oh, <laughs> boy. Yeah. I, I, have, I have a relative who is like, I, I don't understand why every show I watch ends up working in, you know, a homosexual. I don't understand it. They're in there. Why can't I just have my shows? And I had to explain to this person, they're in the real world. Do you want a show that doesn't have trees? Do you want a show that doesn't want to have animals or, or, or houses? Or like, what are you talking about that you want to show that just dilutes reality? And so that's what they want. Like they're aggravated that they, they just really want to watch themselves. You know what's crazy too? I, Marina, you know I was working on that pilot and uh, I actually, I got it to a place where I think it's good. I've been sending it out, but it is a pilot that I wrote from something real in my life. I do stock photo modeling and it's a very diverse set. Like when we go there, like the other models, it's diverse. I, we live in New York, of course, right? And I sent it around to a bunch of professionals and then just some comics who wanted to read it. And Almost, almost universally from the white guy comics, they were like, oh, this is too diverse. This isn't realistic. I'm like, actually, these are based on real people and their actual heritages. These are the people I work with. And they didn't believe it. And they're like, oh, I just don't believe that there would be like an Indian woman in finance who like also stock photo model. Like that doesn't make sense. I'm like, that is her. It is her. That's her real life. I just... <laughs> It shows you how people walk around viewing the world. And I've seen them do it. I've seen them do it. You see people walk around the village and the tunnel vision of, of like whether or not they notice you walk by or whether or not they notice somebody on the ground or whether or not they notice anybody else but their little tiny collection. Even the point of not, not being able to move out of your way because they can't see you on the sidewalk. So when you make somebody a character on a show and you give them lines, they go, you're forcing me to see these motherfuckers? I can't stand it. 
I, yeah. I ignore them all day, every day. I saw that happen right in front of the cellar. A white kid yelled at a guy in a wheelchair, a brother, black man in a wheelchair. We don't want you here. Jesus. And I thought to myself, do you think you own the sidewalk? Do you think you own this space? This is not yours. What makes you think this is yours? Sorry, but that's all about white comfortability. I've seen it so many times out there because we have a homeless situation, you know, that's going on. Uh, globe, like oh, everyone, every state. But like in New York, in that in the village, you can see it, how bad the pandemic has really taken its toll. Mm -hmm. And so it's an intersection of like really privileged white kids and poor, homeless. It's like, whoa. And you're right, Khalees, I'll see them just look at, and it's like, if someone's like, you know, can't walk fast enough, I'll see them look at them like, how come you're not walking fast enough? You're in my way, or I don't need to see this, or I don't want to see this, you know? And it's, it, it dry. That's another reason why I kind of get home fast because I can't, I, I just can't. And a, a lot of times the way they see us, I'll be standing outside of the cellar, I'm just minding my business. Sometimes I'll be smoking weed uh, before I get on the train and they'll come up to me like I work there and they'll go, can you, um, do I get tickets here or do I get, and I'm like, I'm smoking weed right now. Do you want me to work? Is that what you're telling me? You need me to work for you? I don't even understand. I have I, the security guards right here. He's got yeah. on an outfit. I don't even have on an, do I need to dress better? What's going on here? But yeah. there's always like, like, get to it. Like, work for me. Well, and the amount of people that have ordered drinks from me, <laughs> asked me where the bathroom is, asked me if where, where I should seat them, like, just because I'm standing there and they assume that I'm there to serve them. It's just this mentality. And you're mentality. right. It, it, it runs rampant in the neighborhood by the cellar. And it really is that two mix that the two groups of people mixing together is the craziest thing. I, th I feel like all comics were almost like natural observers. We're like, we like, the birds that perch up on a ledge and watch everything that's happening. And so when we're watching this happening, there's so much clicking in our brains. We're computing everything so fast because, and we can see it before it happens. We're like, that person's going to be a problem right now. Like that person's going to be this, that person's going to be that. Cause we're watching from this, you know, kind of broader perspective than the people that are going through the moment. And it's how we, a lot of us get our material is by having that observational view of the world where we can see everything that's going on. Which is amazing because you think, yeah, that's what we do for a living. So when an agent or a manager tries to fool us, it's like, don't you know I do this for a living? Like, uh, this is my job. I had a, when I, when I had, you know, fired my former manager, who I still have a lot of respect for, you know, when even when we were on the phone and she was getting upset and, you know, saying things that she clearly didn't mean because she was upset. She was like, I don't, well, I don't know how you're going to find work. And I was like, well, I hate to break it to you. I've been in this industry 20 plus years. Before there was a you, I was the you. Mm -hmm. I was the manager. I was the agent. I am still the performer, the writer, the director. I am still that person. So although you were a wonderful help and you helped me up my levels in my career, this doesn't mean I can't do this without you. Mm. I choose to do this with you. 
and now I'm choosing to move on. But it's that conversation you have to have with somebody like, please do not forget, I did your job before you got here. <laughs> did they cry <laughs> too? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out here making making the industry weep. <laughs> now I'm going right? to switch gears oh for God. a second because Brittany Griner a WNBA all-star and two-time Olympic gold medalist. I've been following her story forever since it started. And it's just weird that it's not like the main story was arrested in Russia where the offense can mean years in prison. And at a moment when tensions with the U S were rising to their highest point in decades, she is a prominent gay black woman facing trial in a country where authorities have been hostile to the LGBTQ community and the country's nationalist zeal has raised concerns about how she will be treated as extraordinary as her circumstances are. The details surrounding her case remain a mystery as a crucial court date approaches next month. Russian prosecutors have offered little clarity and the U.S. government has made only measured statements. Her legal team has declined to speak out about the case as it works behind the scenes. So are you following? I've been following it. And I they lost me a couple of weeks ago when they were saying that the reason the media is being quiet about it is because they were told to be quiet about it from the government because it would help them with negotiations. I was like, what? <laughs> I know. Yeah. When does that ever stop the media? I saw that and I, I, I thought about that and I understand it to a, an extent. And that's when I was just like, I don't know what's going on in Russia. So I, I can't quite formulate an opinion. It feels like if it had been a LeBron James, everybody, every single person would be outraged because, you know, people are addicted to him as entertainment or whatever. And, and, and he's a source of income and he's this staple of, of how we feel about America. But when it comes to this person. I, I I was like, what, where's the hullabaloo? Why isn't everybody getting worked up about it? Why is everybody so quiet? And when they said, well, we don't want Russia to use her as a bargaining chip. It, it, I went, Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and, it, you know, you feel it, that icky feeling like, don't tell, don't talk about it because it's going to make it worse. And you don't know if it's true, but you, so you, you just have to go along with it. Cause that's what they tell you. There should be protests. There should be like, I mean, even ASAP Rocky, when he got arrested in uh, Sweden, that was huge news. That was everywhere. And we had probably the least quiet president we've ever had in American history at that time. And, you know, we are still able to get him back here. And I mean, and that's a person who, let's be real, now that, I mean, we know a lot about ASAP Rocky now. He probably did whatever they said he did. And... <laughs> And we know we know this woman didn't do anything. She was just she was as gay in a foreign country trying to get back home from the Olympics. Yeah, that's problem number one, being gay in a foreign country where that is not accepted. And we still don't know if she actually had um, whatever the hashish oil or whatever. They were saying it was like a weed pen. She was in China before that for the Olympics. Right. And you can't have any of that there. So how would she even have that? Right. They say there was oil or something like they could detect oil. If if I was in Russia right now, they would have got me so y'all fast. Would not see me. Yeah, because there's so much hashish oil. Um, bro, there's weed in my bag constantly. I thought I was gonna get, I thought I was gonna get in trouble in Israel. I didn't bring actual weed, but I bought like edibles with me, like pills. 
and I put them in a little pill thing. Like it wasn't like I was, I know how to travel with my weed, but I was like, yo, it's legal medically there. I don't understand what the big deal is, you know, for me to bring it over there. But everybody was like, no, don't take a chance. When I tell you, they looked at my passport and they were like, oh, you're American. All right, go ahead. Like they were literally like not concerned with anything. And so then, and people smoke weed there. That's the crazy thing. It's not like you're not going to be able to find weed in that place. We found weed by day two. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, everybody makes this big deal of it. And I know that they say that, you know, obviously, even in that article you were, you had sent us about this, you know, if there's any place you don't want to get in trouble, it's Russia. Well, I feel like Biden has really failed us on this because he's not really communicating on this. Uh, You know, they say there could also be an opening for Putin to build an inroad into the African-American community by ordering her release as a humanitarian gesture. Now, he's a thug, but so you have to communicate in thug terms in order to get. So we're not even what are we doing? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert and I'm not there. So maybe there's stuff going on. But it just seems like the media has failed black women again in this instance and showed us that our bargaining is not worthy. It's just not worthy. Yeah. Like, why, why are black women not worth fighting for from, for this country? Why? They prove it at every single, every single chance they get to, to make it right they prove to us more how black women are just not respected and they're not treated the way that with common decency, let's just say just common decency. Like one of, like one of my favorite, even one of my favorite Michael Che bits from his first special where he talks about civil rights. He's like, we just wanted y'all to be civil. That's it. Civil rights. We didn't ask for anything else. Just be civil. And it just seems like, that's still a battle. Yeah. Now they're saying that Latinas are like, um, do you use the term Latinx? What's your opinion on Latinx? I do not because I don't have the right to use the term Latinx. I, that originated in the gay community. That originated in the LGBTQ community. It was meant to use a gender neutral term for a language that has primarily like feminine and masculine, but primarily masculine terminology. And so for a lot of young LGBTQ people in the Latin community, they just felt not represented. So I have no problem with the term Latinx. That's not how I identify. I grew up as Latina, so I'm Latina to me. But I understand and respect the people that would like to be referred to as Latinx, but it's not everybody. And you can't blanket that term. And that's what he does. He blankets it and the president does not understand the term. It says poll after poll shows that President Biden is losing support from every demographic. Um, Now, here's the thing. I'm just so terrified of what can happen if we like I get it. People don't like Joe Biden, but the alternative is so freaking scary that I don't even say that I don't like him because I'm so terrified of of what is actually happening with democracy. Um, but Quinnipiac University. Yeah, Quinnipiac. Yeah. What? Is that a university? There's a Quinnipiac. Yeah. Oh, I'm new to that one. Um, has the 46th president at 33% approval overall, or just nine points higher than President Nixon had on the day he resigned? 
from office. But a recent report shows that Biden receives just 26 percent approval. Upon entering office, 538 had Biden at 69 percent approval. So we're talking a 43 percent point yeah. drop. In yeah, that's like Netflix. Months. So his drop, his <laughs> stock dropped. President Netflix, we should call him. <laughs> he got that Netflix numbers. <laughs> President Netflix. Still, a mo- more disturbing number for Team Biden comes when looking at his fall among the Hispanic demographic, a hugely important block that 61% voted in favor of him in 2020. According to the latest poll, though, just 12% of Hispanics approve strongly, just 12 of Biden's performance as president, while 54% disapprove strongly or disapprove somewhat. Is this, have you heard these conversations, Gina? Like, (laughs) I mean, as a representative, sorry to make you that. As the Latin representative. (laughs) I mean, there's, I mean, there's always talk about politics and the president. It's been something that I don't think for the past couple of years, we've been able to successfully avoid. Me personally, I avoid most political discussions as they bore me to tears and I don't know enough about them to actually add something to the conversation. However, when it comes to Biden, I feel like there's been nonstop talk as to whether or not it's like, like him, don't like him, support him, don't support him. And it's very polarizing because you're right. The alternative is absolutely frightening. So it's like, you know, where do we stand? It's again, we have constantly in the past few years politically with our representatives mm. been put in a position of which one is the lesser of two evils. And I feel like that's continuously happening to us. It's like nobody really loves this person, but they're better than this other person in so many ways. They're just better as a human being or maybe not even as a human being, just somebody that's not as damaging yeah. as this uh, as our other option. So I think that's always going on. And in the community itself, it only takes one or two slip ups before Latinos are like, nope. <laughs> As a whole. Just Oh really? Nope. Oh yeah. It takes one or two slip ups. Disrespecting us. So when Trump like was eating like, a Taco Bell, did oh, that resonate? First of all, it was laughably offensive. Like it was literally like, could you try why don't you wear a sombrero, bro? Like, could you try harder to pander? to people that you clearly do not support, do not care about. You're pandering to them for vote, for votes. You just are. And it worked for a lot of people. They were like, oh, this guy's cool. He's eating a burrito. All right. He's one of us now. And it's like, no, he's definitely not one of <laughs> us. He's not even one of us humans at this point. So it's like, you can't make that equation. But like, we can tell, I think, especially with, any, with anybody's culture, you have to be very, very careful. Because you want to be sincere, but you don't want to seem like you're overdoing the sincerity. Even It's an even balance of respect and sincerity when you're approaching someone's culture that you're not aware of. So you want to make sure, like one of the things I respected about Steven Spielberg doing West Side Story was he had Puerto Rican consults. He talked to them about what would culturally make sense for people in this movie. And one of them was a, a good friend of mine. And when he told me, I was like, what a wonderfully respectful thing to do when you're taking on a project that was so impactful in the community to actually care about their representation versus just doing whatever you wanted. So it was, you can make the right moves, you know, you just have to be willing to do the extra work. You've said it. The arrogance when they don't do that is astounding. 
you've got to like just take your ego out of it. I don't know what it is where white writers or, or white people in general can't like just admit they don't know something and and just listen just listen like we were talking earlier it's a, it's amazing the arrogance amazing it's not even just white writers it's even i've dealt with some white passing latino writers that just have become so like they're they're so entrenched in that like white writers world that they now share the same opinions the same beliefs that's like they've completely forgotten yeah i was gonna say that because in the in the latino community you are there are some that are white looking and then there's some that are brown some that are black so it's not homogenous so there are going to be people who identify more with like white conservatives and even when that comes to things that affect people who share their heritage, right? So like Biden is still keeping people in cages too. So I mean, it's it's interesting because everyone always talks about the Latino community, like it's homogenous. So just like, it's it's not, there are black people in it, there are brown people and there are white people in it. There are conservatives, there are centrists and there are liberals. It's, I think that's the first thing that a lot of presidents get wrong. They treat it like, they treat the Latino community like it's one thing. But I think that's why he's saying Latinx, because my confusion, I didn't know that was LGBT. I, the, the, in my experience, the only time I've ever heard Latinx is when it's a white passing Latino or Latina. I hear, I am Latinx. And I go, you white. I thought you were white. And I know that's probably disrespectful, but those are the ones who love that term. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, there are people that jump on these social bandwagons and just be like, oh yeah, I can totally get that down with the patriarchy. And it doesn't matter like where that, it's like, no, you don't fully understand where that term even came from. I'm the kind of person that I just can't start using a term without knowing what the origin was. Should I even be using it? Should I say it? Is it disrespectful if I say it? Like you really have to do your research. And a lot of people are just too lazy to do the research. I use Latinx when I'm doing queer shows because that's where you you use that term, but... Um, I mean, I am queer, but it's like if I'm doing if I'm exactly. even in this room right now, it's like I know that Latino is the term that we and Latina are, are the terms that we agreed upon. So <laughs> I'm going to use those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unknowingly agreed upon years ago. This is according to Ben Dixon and Amandi <laughs> Ben International. Dixon. Who day? Uh, <laughs> Who day? <laughs> Forty <laughs> percent of Latino voters are offended by the use of Latinx, while just two percent identified yeah. as Latinx. Which doesn't mean we should stop caring. By the way, it's it's no. always funny to me. They're like, oh, it's not that many. But also, no, I didn't know what Latinx meant until just now, and so I go, oh, are you offended or are you homophobic? What what's what is it? Yeah, exactly. That's the real question. It's like, are you offended or are you homophobic? I don't know who those people are. Like, and it's not so much, I don't see a lot of Latin people getting offended by that phrase, which is interesting. Because anytime somebody mentions a poll or something, I'm like, who were you polling? Where were you? What was the Latino group that you polled specifically? Because you didn't poll all of us because I was never asked. So how, how are you controlling the statistics that you're giving out for this? Because as somebody who's in the community, I know me and my other friends are like, we're not offended by it 
maybe we're annoyed by it when it's overused or used incorrectly, but it's just not everybody identifies as that. It became this thing where everything I've done now was like, well, Latinx, do you identify as Latinx? Like, do, do, like, is that your thing? Like Latinx comic. And I'm like, I had to correct somebody recently. Go, please don't call me a Latinx comic. I'm not a Latinx comic. I'm a comic who happens to be Latina. That's where I'm at. Nice. Thank you for explaining that. For a lot of people who are listening right now, they don't know. Yeah. A lot of people, I didn't know until I did the homework on where the term came from. Now, I could go into Disney, but it, it feels like the story is still kind of, it just kind of cracks me up to see, like, every time they talk about Disney fighting with DeSantos, you see Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and it's like, or, or Goofy. And it just seems so ridiculous. It's like, you're mad at Goofy? You're mad at, mad at Goofy right like, now? It's like, but at the urging of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, the Florida legislator voted this week to punish Disney, one of the world's biggest producers of entertainment and pop culture. Now, Disney can be problematic. So in one way, I kind of go, hmm, but way, I Disney don't like be, him. But in this specific case, they're not being problematic. Yes. And that's my issue. There, there. There's a huge community of gay people who go to Disney and are obsessed with Disney. And I think they know that 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 they have that community. So of course they're going to speak up against an anti LGBTQ law. Of course they're going to, they have to. <laughs> the thing, the thing that jumped out at me about that article is that they are specifying Disney used to be a family oriented, like a good positive place. And you go, Oh, you, the government gave Disney that much power in the first place because it was keeping everybody conditioned into the reality they wanted them to live. But now that Disney's quote unquote woke, which is the insult from the Santas, they're like, well, you, well, we got to stop giving you government like incentives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is going to work in their favor, it says. This Reedy Creek arrangement also allows Disney to tax itself at a higher rate to pay for governmental services like sewage and the fire department. According to one analysis, property taxes on non-Disney landowners in Florida's Orange County could go up by as much mm -hmm. as 25% if Disney Whoa. loses its ability to tax itself. So the people end up paying. And I remember someone saying, please don't, um, someone, I think it was Mia Farrell tweeted out about, I'm not going to Disney anytime soon. And someone was like, please don't blame or yeah, it does. people at Disney or that says a lot more about Mia than it does about Disney or Florida. Like she's like, they're like, wait, like, cause the, the most of the First people of in all, Florida, Florida don't like DeSantis, but what are you going to do? Most of the people in Florida just are the weirdest group of people I've ever experienced in politically in every way. Like they have such crazy views out there it's insane like sometimes you just want to see like when i even when i heard about the don't say gay thing i was like i can't even compute the idiocy of creating a law and having the audacity to call it the don't say gay law are you kidding me Mm -hmm. I mean, remember Clinton era, they had the don't ask, don't tell, right? That was pretty much the same thing, but just in the military. It ruined so many people's lives. It's going to work in our favor, though, because the law is so vague. We talked about this on the last episode, that if you can't say gay, you can't say straight either. So before you go, um, before we get out, 
I do want to mention Hazel Scott, which I did not know about her, um, which I'm like, why don't I? Why didn't I? When Hazel Scott debuted at Carnegie Hall at age 20, she had been playing piano for 17 years. It was 1941. And the virtuous sick musician had mastered both classical music and jazz and the New York Times rave, the shining star of the evening. And Hazel Scott, who can play the piano straight and swing, who can sing and who can decorate any stage you like. Scott would go on to become the first black American man or woman to host her own nationally syndicated television show, The Hazel Scott Show. Despite the prejudices of the time, the peak of her career took place during the Jim Crow era, and Scott racked up accomplishments after accomplishment in the entertainment world, fighting for equality at every step. Her biographer, Karen Chilton notes how her impressive accomplishments were also broad. This is a woman who studied at Juilliard at eight years old when the entrance age was 16, who had her own radio show at 14, who was on Broadway by 18 and was a star at 19 and really is the legacy of prodigy of a black female prodigy. The thing that I picked out from this story is like she was Kaepernick before Kaepernick. She took a knee by refusing to wear an apron in a movie. She said, I'd rather keep my dignity and my pride, my self-awareness and my blackness than to sell out. She understood how blacks are depicted and portrayed as criminals, savages, mentally incompetent. And she wanted broader roles for black actors, more realistic roles for black people. And with her husband, as we all know, Adam Clayton Powell and their son. So I find her story because the one role that she did play was <laughs> as herself. She's like, well, one thing I know how to play is me. Whenever you learn about, it's so funny what they don't teach you in school and what they don't teach you about in school, the people who were impacting the community at that time. The I'd never heard of her before. And knowing that she had her own show at a time where there was so much, and I mean, there still is, but so much racial strife going on in the world that this woman put herself out there like that. It, I can't imagine the scenarios and the situation she was in as a recognizable face. She wasn't just a face in the crowd. This was a woman who was on TV. This was a woman who had accolades. And the fact that she used that platform and used or used her career to fight against Jim Crow and the atrocities going on at that time, by leading by example, really. And it's not only admirable, it's like so inspiring to read stories like that. And we need stories like that in school. So the fact that they're omitted is just so ridiculous. And so much of our history and so much of what has gone on in the past is omitted from us so that we can't learn from it and grow from it so that we stay stuck. Yeah. Did you know about her, Khalees? Hazel no, Scott? No, I haven't. Isn't it and she's married to Adam Clayton Powell. How do, yeah, we, how do we not we know? know? But that's how much we concentrate on what the male counterparts have done as opposed to knowing even who their wives were. Yeah. It's true. I did know about Hazel Scott, but not until like college. So yeah. <laughs> definitely didn't learn about her in grade school. But yeah, this is a really wonderful conversation. Thank you all for being here today. This is a great group. You guys, you're inspiring and you're you're just you're nice people. <laughs> it matters. And uh, we'll start with you, Gina. Just tell us where our listeners can find you. Of course. Yeah. Well, you can find me on TikTok. You can <laughs> TikTok sick. Uh, at Gina Brion on TikTok as well as uh, on Instagram. Those are the two I'm most active on. I am on Facebook too, <laughs> but I'm, I'm rarely on there just because it got too depressing. Well, you can find me on TikTok and IG or go to my website, GinaBrion.com to find out if I'm in your city anytime soon. And with friends like us, we get to have healthy conversations 
about our future and how to better ourselves as people. Yeah. Nice, 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 nice. All right. Noye, tell our listeners where they can find you. Um, so tomorrow there's a good old fashioned hair show at Caveat. First one was at, uh, Khalees, you're on the first one. At, yeah, at uh, Stonewall. We had a great time. Oh, I make amazing. a bunch of wigs, put them on my head, we tell jokes. <laughs> so that's tomorrow, Caveat. And also, I have a movie coming out. I filmed it maybe like three, four years ago now. Um, it's going to be on streaming in July. So maybe if I'm back before it happens, we can talk about it a little bit. It's a... Uh, a lesbian, um, nice. I don't know what those are called, romantic comedy. Yeah, <laughs> a lesbian rom-com. <laughs> and, and it's called The Sympathy Card. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's going to be on a lot of streaming platforms, Amazon, all of them, in July. So, And my, yeah, I'm excited about that. And with I friends like us, oh man. <laughs> With friends like us, you can stay inside if you're sick <laughs> and have a good time. <laughs> nice. That's right. Yes, <laughs> that you. is true. And get better soon. Khalees, where can our listeners find you? And thank you for joining us. It's been a long time. We missed you. <laughs> you can check me on Instagram, C-A-L-I-S-E Hawkins. I always post what I'm doing. But in late May, that Dan Michael Chase season two is out. And several of my sketches made the cut and so excited to see that and with friends like us you can demand to be seen you can learn new terminology for other people who are demanding to be seen like latinx and you can learn how to use it appropriately yes marina franklin here just go to my website marinafranklin.com and with friends like us you can get the best stock tips And this tip is for you, that black women are valuable. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and wheat. Wheat is very valuable. Also, corn is valuable, too. Check us out.